We've said that the elections themselves weren't free, they weren't fair. We have always advocated for free and fair elections. All we wanted to see was a full, free, fair election. Free and fair elections. It's the stamp of approval for the democratic process around the world. A stamp that the United States often plays an important role in giving. But it's unusual to be hearing that same language coming from the White House about the White House. The president will accept the results of a free and fair election. We hear that some of the time. Other times, the election rhetoric coming out of the U.S. sounds quite different. The radical left are laying the groundwork to steal this election from my father, President Donald Trump. Their plan is to add millions of fraudulent ballots that can cancel your vote and overturn the election. We cannot let that happen. We need every able-bodied man, woman, to join Army for Trump's election security operation at DefendYourBallot.com. The stakes are high in the 2020 election, but trust has rarely been this low. One recent poll found that less than a quarter of U.S. voters actually believe the election will be free and fair. And that's where international election observers, like the ones the U.S. contributes around the world, could help. But in the U.S., they're not really well-placed to do that. And this year's observer mission will be the smallest ever. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. My name is Avery Davis-Roberts, and I'm an associate director in the Democracy Program at the Carter Center when we're based in Atlanta, Georgia. That's Carter Center, as in former U.S. President Jimmy Carter. They've observed more than 100 elections in dozens of countries, and Avery's been along for many of them. They're not acting as observers. They're doing an awareness campaign about the process this year. But their decision to get involved is a first. And they say it's because they see U.S. democracy, quote-unquote, backsliding. They're not the only ones who see it that way. Because of quotes like this. If it's a fair election, I am 100% on board. But if I see tens of thousands of ballots being manipulated, I can't go along with that. And I'll tell you what, from a common sense, I'll tell you what it means. It means you have a fraudulent election. So, Avery, let's say that you're in Egypt or Venezuela or another country where you've observed elections in the past. You turn on the TV, you're watching a debate with the president, and he refuses to commit to a peaceful transfer of power. What would your reaction be? I think we would, you know, of course, be quite concerned to hear any sitting president in any country say that they would not commit to a peaceful transfer of power. It's a cornerstone of the democratic process. And for Americans, it's kind of one of the foundational principles of our democracy. I mean, one of the things that made George Washington so remarkable was that he left office. This year, though, a peaceful transfer of power is a real concern. There is also a risk of voter intimidation and even incitement to violence. It's every county clerk's worst nightmare. Thousands of vigilantes showing up without warning on Election Day. Not to vote, but to watch, some of them armed. There was one incident that made news in Northern Virginia when early voting began in September. 
Here's Al Jazeera's U.S. political editor, Alan Fisher, to explain. Northern Virginia would tend to be a democratic stronghold to a large degree. And at that polling place, as people lined up to vote, Trump supporters appeared and got very close to the people who were voting, chanted Trump slogans, had Trump flags. And those in line felt that they were being intimidated. Did I think it was real intimidation? I thought they were loud. I thought they were obnoxious. I mean, we see Trump supporters all the time because I go to the rallies and I know what they're like. Um, but uh, I could see why people were intimidated. It felt to them, and who are we to argue with how they felt because they were there, that they were being intimidated. And there is a concern among Democrats that that picture will be repeated all over the country on Election Day. The convergence of all these factors led Amnesty International to issue an unprecedented advisory, calling for a ban on firearms near polling places. This is Jasmeet Sidhu, a senior researcher with the End Gun Violence Campaign at Amnesty. We issued this rare advisory because of our grave concerns on the confluence of several crises, uh, a historic surge in firearms sales across the country, a pandemic that's taken over 213,000 lives, mass unemployment nationwide, a rise in white supremacist violence, the recruiting of election monitors that could be armed and dangerous. We have officials urging the public to buy ammunition and a president that recently suggested sending armed law enforcement to the polls. Americans are more likely than ever to come face to face with armed individuals at their polling places. With a rise in white supremacist violence, we're worried Black and Latinx voters are particularly at risk of armed intimidation. And with this advisory, we're urging governors nationwide to take immediate action to protect everyone's safety while they exercise their right to vote. Even with all of these potential crises, it's hard to have a unified response to any of them because of the U.S.'s sprawling system for running elections. You have an army of something like a thousand Republican lawyers around the country who are going to challenge votes at every level, particularly focusing on mail-in votes. So, Avery, you're not observing this election, but you are following the process. You're also an expert on Democratic elections. So how would you say the 2020 election in the U.S. compares to other elections that you've observed internationally? You know, it's hard to say. Every election is so unique and all electoral systems are so different from one another. But I think the U.S. is sort of unique in a lot of ways that are sometimes kind of hard to explain, <laughs> honestly, when we're talking to people in other countries. You know, the fact that we don't have a centralized election management body. I think I heard an estimate once of like more than 10,000 electoral jurisdictions in the United States. So that's something that's different. Because all of the elections are administered at different levels, we don't have necessarily one common set of election laws. We also have all of the different sort of state levels and county levels. So it just means that essentially, you know, you're not looking at one election. It just feels like it's one thing because we turn out to vote on one day and we have one ballot. But there's a lot going on on that piece of paper or on that screen that you're voting on. I asked Avery what she was concerned about. She's got personal experience, not just as an observer, but also as a poll worker. She's actually volunteering to work on Election Day herself because of the low number of poll workers during the primary elections earlier this year. 
there were poll worker shortages. Some poll workers were just not feeling comfortable turning up because, you know, in the United States, the average age of a poll worker, I think, is like 65. And so there's real overlap between the demographics of the people who are sort of the frontline election workers and those that might be most susceptible to COVID. So what is the plan for election observing in the U.S. this year? What can you tell us about the main observer group, the OSCE? So the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, have sent an international election observation delegation. They're already here. The OSCE first started observing elections in the U.S. in 2002, after the contested election of 2000, which was ultimately decided by the Supreme Court. Back in June this year, the OSCE said carrying out these elections will be the most challenging in recent decades and could ultimately cast doubt on the outcome. It recommended the largest ever observer mission to the U.S., 100 long-term and 400 short-term observers. But instead, thanks to COVID, it'll be the smallest, a few dozen short-term observers and 100 long-term. And it's only going to be active in 28 states. We'll get to that in a minute. They were hoping for a much bigger delegation, you know, of several hundred people. But I think with COVID and travel restrictions and issues getting visas, just because of all the travel limitations that their observers were facing, they are bringing a smaller delegation than they would have liked. So what do U.S. election monitors actually do? I should say that election observers sort of have a standard methodology that we would use in any country where we observe, regardless if it's here or Ghana or Venezuela. There are what we call long-term observers and there are short-term observers. And long-term observers are deployed well in advance of election day. They'll, you know, just try and collect as much information as they can about the pre-election environment. And then they'll observe on election day and then they remain past election day to sort of gather information about complaints or disputes that might be going through the court system so that you really have a much more full understanding of the entire electoral process. So those are long-term observers. Short-term observers come to a country for about seven to 10 days right around election day. They will be sent to different polling stations or polling precincts on election day with a sort of a standardized set of questions and they will just collect information about how voting happens in specific precincts. And then that information is sort of collated with the information from the long-term observers to give that, that fuller picture. This is from another Carter Center observer mission in Nepal. We have a list of questions, which we call a checklist, somewhere between 30 to 50 questions that we answer each time. I have a few quick questions for you, and then we can talk a little bit more. Can you spell that for me? One more polling station left to go. And they will just collect information about how voting happens. And, you know, as an observer, the first thing you do when you get to the polling precinct where you're going to be observing is you go up and introduce yourself to the polling officials. You explain a little bit about, you know, what you're there to do, that you're just going to watch how the process unfolds, take a few notes, and that you might have some questions for the election officials. You don't talk to the voters in the polling place. That is not the job of an observer. You don't want to, to, to disrupt the process at all. And then that information will be used by the OSCE to prepare a preliminary statement and then a final report that sort of outlines their findings and key recommendations on the election. 
In the U.S., though, those observers can't actually observe in all 50 states. Why is that? It kind of goes back to this issue of us having a decentralized election administration structure. Because the states make the decisions about how elections are run, they make the decisions about who can observe. There's a few states that explicitly prohibit international election observation. When you cast your ballot next Tuesday, will foreigners be watching? Keep your distance from the polls or face criminal prosecutions. That is Texas Attorney General Greg Abbott to the head of a U.N.-affiliated organization that is planning to send 55 foreign observers to monitor elections in Texas and other U.S. states. The Iowa Secretary of State is warning the group to stay out of all polling places. There are a few states that explicitly allow international election observation in their law. And then there are many states that don't say anything either way and that have had actually a practice of allowing international observation, even though it's not clearly stated in laws. The states where it's explicitly prohibited include Arizona, Florida, Ohio, and Texas. But during the 2018 elections, the OSCE said other states also refused to meet with their observers, including in Nevada and Pennsylvania. You might recognize some of those as swing states, or even states that decided previous elections. Avery chalks that reluctance up to a little bit of U.S. exceptionalism. I think a lot of cases where observers are not allowed, you know, that there has not necessarily been, maybe in some cases there hasn't been a history of observation. And so it just seems like sort of a concept that like, why would we need that? No, we're not going to let people in to see this process. So this isn't the first high stakes election in recent memory. The 2004 election was during the height of two wars. The 2008 election was during a major financial crisis. Why did the Carter Center decide to get involved this year? I think it is an election that is unique in that it is in the middle of a global pandemic, which will greatly impact how the election is run and how people feel they can participate. I think the polarization in the country has sort of reached a height that was not necessarily there at 2004. Certainly the seeds had been planted by 2004, 2008, but I think now we see that extreme political polarization is sort of flourishing We see that there is a decrease in trust in elections and in some of our political institutions. And frankly, this is a year where we have seen great volatility and political unrest more broadly with the protests that have sort of emerged across the country in response to police brutality, you know, and and then counter reactions to those protests. Avery says current events are not the only reason for lack of confidence. It's also a long U.S. history of suppression of minority voters. I think that the reasons for that lack of confidence are going to be different based on who you are. For African-American communities in Georgia or across the South, or honestly, as we know, across the country, histories of voter suppression will definitely have an impact on confidence in the electoral process, confidence that, you know, when you get to the polling station, you will be allowed to vote and your vote will be counted as you cast it. That's already been playing out in this election cycle, during the primary elections, notably in areas that had high numbers of minority voters. From the air, you could see long lines of Georgia voters, socially distanced, stretching through parking lots. 
Thousands waited hours to cast ballots, and frustration was evident. In Nevada, voters were encouraged to cast their vote by mail, but problems with lost or unreceived ballots led a lot of folks to head to the polls with a wait time that stretched for hours. Well, they said it was about four hours from when we were back there, so it's, eh, we got another probably three. That is definitely going to impact your confidence in the process. But I think maybe for other communities that have different experiences of elections, I think we need to really be aware that people are coming to this from different experiences and that we need to be able to speak to all of those concerns equally. As we mentioned, you're someone who's observed elections in many other countries, and you're now working on raising awareness here at home in your home country. So you have a really unique perspective a look at how the U.S. is not necessarily unique itself. It is just like any other country and can be just like any other country. Have you had any moments of deja vu during this election cycle? You know, it's just different when it is the place where you live and where the outcome of not just the results of the election, but sort of the outcome of people's engagement with the process as part of sort of democracy, where that impacts, you know, the life that you live in the life of your family. And so it's been interesting for me to think about how different it is to be working domestically than internationally, just because what I do for a living has made me feel that, like, I understand that there are safeguards and procedures in place to protect the integrity of my ballot, and that will ensure that my ballot is counted. So I actually feel fairly confident in the mechanics of the election process. I think that the fact that there are concerns about it is concerning in and of itself, that we are sort of experiencing an electoral process where we are having to have a lot of public discussion about voter intimidation as something that could happen at a large scale or even in isolated incidents is concerning. You know, there's a lot of discussion about all of the different things that could potentially happen in the context of this election. And I think the thing that's important to remember about it, though, is that despite the challenges we might face, we in the United States have a strong history of sort of institutions and rules and procedures and and laws that we can fall back on. And I think it's important to remember that those systems are in place and those procedures are in place, even when it feels daunting and and concerning and a little scary. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Oni Wohacha, Nagin Oliai, Priyanka Tilvey, Amy Walters, Nate Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is the engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is the executive producer, and Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. We'll be back 